place to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we resume our study of Paul's letter to his child in the faith, Timothy. We'll be focusing this evening on verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read from verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to more speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would guide us in our study of your word, for we seek sanctification and the wisdom, the blessing that we know can only be found there and not in the wisdom of this world. We pray as a congregation that you would help us to to understand what your Spirit put upon the heart of the Apostle Paul in writing this and these pastoral epistles, uh, that they might guide us as, uh, as an assembly to watch after the flock and to to be a flock that follows after the Good Shepherd. So we ask, Father, for your guidance and your wisdom in our hearts and in our minds. And we present our worship of you through your word. We present that to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the animated Christmas children's um, show, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That was more from uh, my childhood, I think, but it's still syndicated. And in that little uh, animated movie, there's, uh, there's an island. Uh, it's called the Island of Misfit Toys. Um, that island somewhat describes non-denominational evangelical churches. And I have often reflected over the years that Fellowship Bible Church is often like the island of misfit toys. Now what that means is that because we don't have a specific denominational association, and also because we are not confessional in an uh, official sense, non-denominational churches will frequently have people who have different views not necessarily aberrant, often not even close to heretical, but a different perspective that um, you wouldn't find in a more homogenous denominational church, although you find it there too, but not quite as much. It's not quite as pronounced as it is in a non-denominational church and, and a small church like ours. And over the years, we have indeed had people and have people whose whose emphasis or or perspective 
on this or that aspect of the faith is, is just a little bit different than what maybe we're used to, each as individuals, as we talk with folks and we think, well, you know, that's, that's interesting. Where are they coming from? Or more importantly, where are you going with this? And so we do have a maybe a little bit more particular, um, not danger, because I think denominational churches have a certain danger of false security. The idea that because they have perhaps a liturgy or a, a confession or a creed, or because they do basically have their shibboleths and, and they're saying basically ever the same thing, that everything's okay and they're safe from false teaching. But history, I think, has shown that no congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ is safe from the evil one, from deception. And false security can be far more dangerous than um, a, a less homogenous mix of people. On the plus side, the scriptures tell us that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And, and I think we, we actually benefit when we don't associate with people who say the same thing in the same words, but rather we listen to one another say perhaps the same thing in different words or with a different perspective or a different emphasis. And yet, there is always the danger that that different emphasis or that different perspective is in fact false. And I think that's what Paul is dealing with here. And in his letters, which are called occasional letters, because they were written on the, on the occasion of some issue that was going on in some of the churches that Paul had founded. In this case, it's Ephesus. And so it's an occasional letter in which we find that uh, certain men are teaching heterodox, literally is the word, heterodox teachings, different, strange doctrines, not quite along the line of what Paul had laid out. And I, I want to look briefly at who were these certain men? Now, I'll say up front, we really don't know. And, and it is the particular um, pastime of commentators to try to determine who the, the, the heretics were or the false teachers or the teachers of strange doctrine were in each of the letters of Paul or John when they are obviously teaching against somebody who's teaching something that they don't like, that isn't right. For example, was Paul dealing with here in Ephesus Judaizers? In other words, those who wanted to add obedience to the law of Moses and circumcision and the dietary laws to faith in Jesus Christ and make a, a, a synchronism between these two. That's what a Judaizer did. And of course we read that, that these want, wanting to be teachers of the law, verse 7. So maybe they were Judaizers. Well, Paul actually deals with that particular false teaching in both um, his letter to Titus, where he says that such men must be silenced, and in his letter to Galatians, where he said that he would, would, would that they would mutilate themselves. In other words, he did not mince words when he was dealing with Judaizers. Okay? He, he didn't say, you know, I, I want you to instruct certain men to stop teaching strange doctrines. No, he said, they must be silenced. Or, I wish they would just mutilate or emasculate, literally, themselves. He, he got mad, and I think with a righteous anger, 
Because as he tells us in Galatians, these men were perverting and distorting the gospel. And therefore, they were anathema. They were accursed. I don't think that's what we're dealing with here in 1 Timothy. Perhaps we are dealing with Gnostics. This was a, 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 another mixture of Christianity with, with Greek philosophy. And it was based on the word epignosis, which meant uh, a higher knowledge, an esoteric knowledge. Um, the Masons are big into this kind of higher knowledge, and they have their different degrees up to the 32nd degree Mason. You know, that kind of a secret society. The Gnostics said, though, that's what the church is like. There are carnal Christians, and then there are spiritual Christians. So we have a little bit of that in modern fundamentalism, don't we? People who have, who have attained to a higher knowledge of God. Was Paul dealing with them? Well, in some respects, we might say he was. In, for example, at the end of this letter, in chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, Paul writes, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Now that word is gnosis, from which we get the Gnostics, which some have professed and thus have gone astray from the faith. Now that phrase, gone astray, or as we read it in verse 6 of, of chapter 1, turning aside, that's really what's at the heart of the matter here. And it may be that Paul was dealing with Gnostics. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians that knowledge, gnosis, makes one arrogant, but love edifies. But he also says that, that he was not behindhand in knowledge. And he was dealing with another group of troublemakers um, in the early churches when he wrote to the Corinthians about, and this is the third possibility, a group that he called the Super Apostles. They were put out by Marvel Comics, you know, the Super Apostles. The, the word is actually, um, uh, in the Greek, it's huperleon, and it sounds very much like superior. And they were huperleon apostolon. They were superior apostles. Apparently there were some men going around the churches who claimed to be these super apostles. And apparently they were by God's grace, given the ability to perform miracles. Uh, apparently, as Paul was saying, they were quite eloquent in their preaching because he compared himself somewhat unfavorably uh, in his letter, saying that he was not, not very eloquent, but he was more powerful with the pen than he was with the tongue. But he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Those are the super apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. Paul had to defend his own apostolic uh, sanction, his own pedigree, and he does that in a number of different letters. But these are three groups of troublemakers that Paul had to deal with in the church. The first, the Judaizers, as I said, he, he did not mince words. He did not pull punches. And I, I really don't think that's what we're dealing with here. But he also had what, would, what may have been the beginnings of a Gnosticism coming into the churches, especially uh, Ephesus, which was a Greek city in Asia Minor. And so Greek philosophy 
um, would have been, uh, been established in Ephesus for centuries before Christ came. So very well may have been a Gnosticism, or, or maybe there had been a visit from some of these super-apostles who claimed to know more than Paul did. But what we do know from the text, without being able to determine exactly what we were dealing with, we do know that these are those who have turned aside. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. Turning aside, we have a dangerous deviation that we're dealing with here. Paul's tone is pastoral and even paternal. Paternal, obviously, toward Timothy, as he puts Timothy in charge of a congregation that he is forced to leave because of duties elsewhere in Macedonia, but also paternal and pastoral toward the flock at Ephesus, knowing that deviations can be very, very dangerous. They can lead to heresies. They can lead to... um, Deception within the congregation. And yet I think Paul is still very hopeful. As we read at the beginning in verse 3, he instructs Timothy to charge these men, to instruct these men not to turn aside. James tells us in the fifth chapter of his letter, he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've read that passage, my mind tends toward those who are committing what we might call outward sins. But that's not what James says. He says, if any of you strays from the truth, now, that includes our behavior and our practice because the truth is, is full-orbed. It deals not only with what we think, but also what we do. But it's the, the admonition and the, and the danger of straying here in James chapter 5 is not just what these people are doing. It may very well be, as a straying from the truth, it may be what they're teaching. In other words, it applies to what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, if any among you strays and is teaching strange doctrine, any who turns such a man back will save his soul from death. Deviation is dangerous. In um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Uh, The language is very common. The turning away, the turning aside, the straying. It's very visual. You have this idea of people who were on the right path, but at some point they got off that path. And maybe for a while it seems like they're still in the same direction because you can still see them. And maybe their path is running roughly parallel, but slightly deviant. And you know from your geometry lessons that, you know, if something is separated at the conjunction of two lines by even a degree, 
Obviously, the further away you go down those lines, the further distant they are from each other. And I think that is what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Timothy, not the full heresy of the Judaizers, not even the dangerous syncretism of the Gnostics, but deviation, strange doctrines, things that are focusing on what might otherwise be somewhat harmless, like genealogies, things that lead to myths. In other words, they're not founded in historical reality. And they lead to ultimate destruction. In, F, in Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Timothy, uh, this very letter in chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, therefore, uh, he's talking about relationships among the people in the church. And um, he, he's saying that it's important, for example, in verse 14, it's important that, that younger widows get married so that they're not... Uh, subject to the temptations of gossip. In other words, that they don't become breeding grounds, and I don't mean that any pun intended, for these false myths and genealogies to take root. And in verse 15, Paul says, For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. That's kind of the negative end of the story here. I believe in chapter 1, we're not there yet. But if we're not vigilant, and if Timothy is not diligent, we will be there, he says. And there's no congregation that can do well when any of its members turn aside to follow Satan. This is not just a private sin within a congregation of, of the Lord's people. It is a dangerous one, and it is a destructive one. We have an example from the Old Testament, one of the the most famous kings of Judah, young Josiah. And it is said of, of Josiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. There's that phrase again. Josiah did not turn aside either to the right or to the left, but the standard by which the kings of Judah were measured, was David. Was David sinless? I mean, just consider what we've learned regarding David through our David's sermons in First and Second Samuel. Josiah followed and walked in the ways of his father David, and you might think, oh boy, that's not necessarily a good thing. But clearly, what is meant here is not David's sins, but David's faithful obedience and submission to the Lord. Also, David's doctrine that comes out in his Psalms, his, his submission to the sovereign providence of God. Josiah followed David in that which David was to be followed but not in those things that David was not to be imitated. And I, and I think we, we understand that. Nonetheless, it's still a very high standard that we're given. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He also says that you should take note of any among you who follow these teachings, and you should follow them and give them honor. So while it is a very high standard... The standard is not perfection, it's not sinless purity, 
which none of us can attain in this life, but rather it's steadfastness in the same direction. There are basically three levels that we're looking at here through all of the passages that I've read. There's the the bad, turning aside. There's the better, turning back again. And then there's the best, not turning at all, neither to the right nor to the left. If we start with the bad, turning aside, then it is the... It is the duty, if at all possible, by God's grace, for the pastors and the congregation to seek to turn that person back again, to turn the bad back to better. But we should always remember the best is not to turn aside at all, is to do as Josiah did, and that is to follow the pattern of sound words, as Paul would put it, neither turning aside to the right nor to the left. And so the ministry of the Word, if we understand it, I think, biblically, is held in trust by the ministers of the Word who are put over the flock. It is the responsibility of the elders of the church to faithfully dispense the Word of God to the congregation. But I would put to you that one of the causes of deviation and and damage in the church is often that the congregation seeks to monitor what it's being fed and just begins to accept it mindlessly and uncritically. Because we read this and say, oh, you know, Paul's talking to Timothy. It was Timothy's responsibility. It's the pastor's job to make sure that the teaching is sound and solid. Well, If we take that attitude, or if any congregation takes that attitude, um, I can envision Satan very happy. Very happy indeed. Because what we have done is we have fallen into the sin of clericalism, or priesthood, where we have, as congregants, as sheep, we have abdicated our responsibility to search the scriptures ourselves to another man who is fallible, who has the same sins in him as we have in us, who is just as flattered by praise and applause as the next man, and just as susceptible to deception as we are. So we we must understand that it's a responsibility that's put upon all of us Not that we hold the pastors to perfection or even to a a level of knowledge that not every man can attain, but rather that they be trustworthy. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, something that I think summarizes the pastoral ministry of every congregation. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's really what we're talking about. In one metaphor, in in one 
um, image, you have that of walking in the same direction down the right path. But when you consider the responsibility of ministering the Word of God to God's people, that path is one of trust. And so that faithfulness is not just a walk, it is a stewardship. And at the end of the day and end of every day, the measure of judgment that God will hold against the ministers of His Word, but also I think the measure of judgment that the congregation should hold is trustworthy. Worthy of the trust given to Him, which is God's Word. The Old Testament God, that's the word, He exclaims against the false prophets by saying, Whoever gave you the right to take my word upon your lips. And then in the New Testament, in James, we read, Let not many of you become teachers, for as such you will incur a stricter judgment. Because not only will you be judged, as Paul tells the Corinthians, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. Every one of us as believers will have to do that. But those who teach God's word will have an additional judgment. And that is, were you found faithful? Were you worthy of the trust that was given to you? The language, um, turning aside, or of turning back, or of not turning at all, is the language of motion. And so I want to kind of close our, our meditations um, by, by looking at what this faithfulness is not. For instance, it's not standing still. A flock cannot graze in the same spot all year long. Nor can a congregation feed on the same teaching Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And some of you may have experienced churches like that or ministries that seem to have, uh, you know, musically speaking, one string. I remember early on uh, as a Christian back in the early 80s listening to a, a preacher on television. And, um, you know, that's probably a problem right there. But, uh, you know, what I was hearing I liked and it seemed to be in the Word. But, you know, it didn't take long until I realized that he was saying the same thing every episode. Every time he got in the pulpit, he had the same particular um, soapbox that he was standing on. In other words, he wasn't moving. And if the pastors are not moving, neither is the flock. You know, we have the example of the, will, the uh, Israelites in the wilderness. They didn't camp in one place the whole time. They moved. Which means that the shepherds need to be growing themselves. They, they need not be where they were a year ago or five years ago or 10 or 20 years ago. What they are feeding the flock must always be, and this is that faithful trust, it must always be the Word of God, but the depths of the Word are unfathomable. I mean, we can keep digging and keep digging and stay true to the Word without giving the same meal every Sunday. 
So this idea of, of motion, of movement, is part of this whole concept. And I think it's what, it's what um, really makes the challenge um, so intense. It, it's very easy to think, okay, it, kind of like the parable of the talents, of the, of the money. You know, I, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to be judged. So you know what, I'm just going to stay on the simple gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know. I'm just going to do the same thing every Sunday, and that way I'm in no danger of turning aside. Well, I have turned aside by standing still. I have led the congregation to stagnant waters. I have led the congregation to fields of grass that have been trampled over where there's little left of nutrition. That's not the answer. Okay? Paul says in uh, Philippians, he says, However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Follow, walk, these are motion terms. And we're going to keep moving so long as we're alive. And I frankly believe longer than that. Because I, I, just, I love that, that passage in, in Job where after extolling the majesty of God, Job says these are but the fringes of your ways. The depths are past finding out. So it's not a situation of staying in one place. Also, another counterfeit faithfulness is borrowing from other shepherds. It's really plagiarizing. But this happens. Um, it happens in one of two ways. Sometimes it happens quite blatantly. In his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon uh, shares the anecdote of a time that he was out of the pulpit taking a rest. And on the Lord's Day, wherever he was, he, he was still in England, he went to a local church and he very, um, you know, surreptitiously went into the back and sat down and worshipped with that congregation and proceeded to listen almost word for word to one of his own sermons. The way it actually works, though, plagiarism is not quite as rampant, although you can get uh, MPEGs and CDs from christianbooks.com. In case you don't have a sermon for the next day, you know, they'll give you the, the sermons that you might need. They actually advertise it that way. You know, to the pastors of the churches, Late one night, late Saturday night, you've had a busy week, you don't have a sermon, just pull up the CD and type in a verse and we'll give you a sermon. That's an abomination, but, and hopefully nobody actually does that. But the, the way this borrowing really kind of manifests itself is when a pastor latches on to a particular teacher and basically, like a bird feeding its young, just regurgitates to his congregation the teaching of another man. I, I remember visiting the study of a pastor, and um, he did not have many books, but the books he did have were all written by the same man. You know, all of the commentaries put out by this particular man, who is a good and godly expositor, but that's not that's not feeding the flock. That's not leading in sound doctrine. That's not the reason for which any man 
has been placed over God's flock. The third counterfeit assertion is one that Paul actually mentions here in verse 7. And, and Lord willing, we will be talking about the law as we get into verse 8 and beyond. But I, I love the way he says in verse 7, these men want to be the teachers of the law, but they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters a bit about which they make confident assertions. In other words, if you don't know what you're talking about, say it louder. Say it confidently. That, that's oftentimes a counterfeit. Frankly, you ought to hear from your pastors a little bit of self-doubt as to certain passages. Now, frankly, I don't, I don't personally trust anybody who says he understands the book of Revelation. And I'm going to keep my distance from anybody who understands the book of Ezekiel. Actually, I want them to go out in the parking lot and build a wheel within a wheel that moves but doesn't move. <laughs> and once I see it, I might understand it. I don't think there's any shame. Paul says, we are stewards entrusted with the mysteries of God. Okay? And God, by His Holy Spirit, is un unveiling these mysteries as we dig deeper into His Word. And I think all of us can, can attest to the fact that we understand certain things now better than we did years ago. And things that we thought we understood years ago, we, we didn't have right at all. Which means there's a pretty good chance that things that we think we understand now. Now, there are some bedrock doctrines upon which we are clear. The pattern of sound words that Paul talks about. But there's also much in the law, especially, that we don't fully understand why it's there or what it has to do with us today. I think many of us have a sense that because it is God's word, it has something to do with us. But making confident assertions about that which we don't know is a form of counterfeit faithfulness. It's bluster and bravado. It's not a faithful steward. So I think Paul is giving us the kind of the, um, the litmus test, the criteria by which we can measure what we hear. But it is the congregation's role, I believe, to be Bereans and to study the scriptures. It's not all on the pastor's shoulders. They do have a um, stricter judgment that lies in waiting for them. But it is also the writer of Hebrews who says that if we, as a congregation, do not honor them and do not assist them, we make it more difficult for them. And in such, I think that we bring judgment upon ourselves. I don't think it can be placed entirely because we all have the Holy Spirit. We all have the anointing. John says we have need of no one to teach us because we have that anointing. There's a responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. If you have the Holy Spirit of God who leads into all the truth, then you cannot properly say, you take it, I'll, I'll just listen. You don't have the right to hand over the feeding of your soul entirely to another man. You are responsible. And you're responsible also for your brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not advocating that the congregation um, stand up in judgment of every sermon. We had that here once. We called it uh, sharing time. And it was basically a critique of the sermon um, afterward by people who hadn't read the passage at 
Most until that morning, if even then. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that every believer should have it as his and her goal to recognize sound doctrine because they should be following it themselves. And therefore, when there seems to be a deviation, we don't jump on it like a fly on manure. We don't jump on it and and condemn it because it's not quite the same language. But we can each listen carefully to what is being said and make a judgment within our own minds at first as to whether or not this is a false teaching or perhaps just a different perspective on the truth. On the one hand, if it is false, if it is truly a deviation, then anyone who turns that person back will save his soul. Anyone, James says. Not just the pastors. So you have lunch with this particular fellow who's coming to the church and he's saying some things that you don't quite understand. You've been listening and there are certain aspects of it, like perhaps with Apollos, who we're told did not know the way of Christ properly. And what did Paul do? Well, Paul didn't do anything. Where was it? It was Priscilla and Aquila, right? Took him aside and showed him the way more clearly. And because he was a regenerate child of God, he accepted that and became a powerful preacher of the gospel in the Mediterranean world. I personally think he wrote the book of Hebrews, but that's my opinion. But somebody turned him back from a deficiency in his teaching, and it wasn't the apostle who did it. It could be any one of us in a private conversation in our home or at spill the beans or whatever, turning someone back. And when we do that, and when we are alert to that within a congregation, Paul says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I was in that church, by the way. It was in Oklahoma City. And the pastor could not finish a book or a topic that he informed the church the Lord had led him to preach upon. But he could never get through it before the Lord was leading him on to something else. In other words, he was tossed by every wind and wave, and so was the congregation with him. And Paul says, no, that's not the way. We are not tossed about by every and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but speaking or um, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. Now in that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, once again, Paul does not put the sole responsibility for this growth upon the pastor teachers, but rather upon every joint and ligament of the body. Every member of the body providing that which the Lord had gifted and has gifted him or her. And each of us studying to show ourselves approved, knowing sound doctrine when we hear it, and knowing and recognizing deviations when we hear them. So that we might, as he said, grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. Let us pray. 
Father, we do thank you that you have given us such a wonderful account of your revelation, your word. And we do value it, Father. We do hold it in trust. We know it to be a revelation of the deep things of God. We know that you have given us your Holy Spirit without whom we could not understand any of it. And yet we also know that we now see as in a mirror dimly. We know that as we approach your word, every time we do so, we expect to find new and deeper truths about you, about our Lord Jesus Christ, about ourselves, about your grace and mercy and judgment, about your church, about your plan for the consummation of the ages, all of these things and more we find in your most holy word. So, Father, I pray that each of us, and not just the elders of the congregation, but each of us, would take upon ourselves the duty and responsibility to be Bereans, to study the Scriptures, to know that when we hear something either in our own congregation or read it in a book or hear it on the radio, that we can recognize sound doctrine from heterodoxy, from strange doctrine. And Father, give us the wisdom to know and the courage to turn back those who have strayed, who have turned aside. And give us, we pray, grant us success that we might follow that path that Paul laid out by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that at the end of our time we might be found faithful. We ask this, Father, for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this evening from the letter of Job, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.